I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Movies. V for Vendetta. I wish I wasn't afraid all the time, but... I am. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Those caught in violation of curfew will be prosecuted without leniency or exception. It's past curfew, you know. Gentlemen, I want this terrorist foul, and I want him to understand what terror really means. We're working on several leads. Her parents were detained when she was 12. It was like those black bags erased them from the face of the earth. You have one chance. You must tell us the whereabouts of Codename V. If our own government was responsible for the deaths of a hundred thousand people, you really want to know? <laughs> Those who are responsible will be held accountable. The time has come for you to live without fear. I'm ready. This country stands on the edge of oblivion. I have everyone remember why they need us. Kill him. feeling that everything was connected. We're all part of it. Are we ready for it? The only verdict is vengeance. This is a commissioned show for Alejandra Vargas, and joining us is a lady with an abiding passion for this story. Welcome back to the show, someone who never fails to elevate us. V for Victoria, Luna B. Grief. Voila! Oh, I'm not going to go into the whole The new the whole Citizen speech. V. <laughs> I, I, I could probably do the whole speech, but I will not. Are I, you I sure? Because I would really love to hear someone just reel that off. It's so showy. Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran, cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the Vox Populi, now vacant, vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish those venal and virulent vermin vanguarding vice and vouchsafing the violently vicious and voracious violation of volition. The only verdict is vengeance, a vendetta held not in vain, for the value and veracity of such shall someday vindicate the vigilant and the virtuous. Verily, this visage of verbiage veers most verbose, so let me simply add that it is my very good honor to meet you, and you may call me Victoria. (laughs) 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 
This 2006 film is based on the graphic novel by Alan Moore and David Lloyd, originally released as a 10-issue monochrome serial comic between 1982 and 1985. The story depicts a dystopian and post-apocalyptic near-future history version of the United Kingdom in the what appears to be the 1990s at that point. It was in the future when it was written in 82. The era is post-nuclear war from the 1980s that devastated most of the rest of the world. The Nordic supremacist, neo-fascist, outwardly Christio-fascistic and homophobic fictional Norse fire political party has exterminated its opponents in concentration camps and now rules the country as a police state. The comics follow the story's titular character and protagonist V, an anarchist revolutionary dressed in a Guy Fawkes mask, as he begins an elaborate and theatrical revolutionist campaign to kill his former captors, bring down the fascist state and convince the people to abandon fascism in favour of anarchy, while inspiring a young lady, Evie Hammond, to be his protégé. Guy, or Guido Fawkes, or Guido Fawkes, born in 1570, was a real-life extremist and member of a group of provincial English Catholics. In 1605, Guy and his co-conspirators plotted, prepared, set into action and failed what is known as the Gunpowder Plot. It was an attempt to blow up the English Parliament. Fawkes fought in Spain during the Eighty Years' War, which was 20 years shorter than the Hundred Years' War. He later met Thomas Wintour, with whom he returned to England. Wintour introduced him to Robert Catesby, who planned to assassinate the tyrannical King James I and restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. Their target was the monarch who came up with the King James Bible, which rewrote the existing Catholic doctrine, adjusting it to the new Protestant faith, which was itself put into action by the father of James I's predecessor, Queen Elizabeth I, Henry VIII. The Catholics were none too happy with Henry for getting his own Christianity with blackjack and divorces and six consecutive wives. But it's important to note that Elizabeth I whom this country venerates, was excommunicated by the Pope. You're joking! The Pope! Oh my God! People were very upset that she hadn't taken a husband or sired an heir, so Elizabeth I clamped down on Catholics, forcing everyone to attend Protestant church gatherings, torturing and executing an obscene amount of people. So, this anger and unrest predated James I by quite some way, and that was also James VI of Scotland, son of Mary, Queen of Scots. That King James Bible also added some choice new ways of conducting the people, including Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, which went on to rip the lives away from thousands of innocent women, plus the assertion that because one of Noah, he of the Ark, one of Noah's sons saw his father drunk and naked that one time, God Almighty struck him with black skin and rendered him and his descendants to serve his brothers forevermore. In other words, adding a religious reason to perpetuate slavery in the 17th century. In other words, James I was an utter monster, and Guy Fawkes and his cronies wanted him to go up in smoke. The plotters leased an undercroft beneath the House of Lords. Fawkes was placed in charge of the gunpowder that they stockpiled there. The authorities were prompted by an anonymous letter to search Westminster Palace during the early hours of the 5th of November, and they found Fawkes guarding the explosives. 
He was questioned and tortured over the next few days and confessed to wanting to blow up the House of Lords. Then he was publicly hung, drawn and quartered, a message to the people from their tyrannical rulers for the astronomically high price of treason. The person being executed is hanged until mostly dead, then emasculated, disemboweled, and then has his limbs forcibly removed before finally having his head cut off. Most of the time they are alive the whole way through. Lady conspirators would receive a much more merciful burning at the stake, their flesh roasting while they screamed their last, choking on smoke. In case it's not obvious, I find government-mandated torture and capital punishment to be one of the most prominent indicators of the barbarism at the core of any given society. In the centuries since then, the people of the United Kingdom regularly burn effigies of Guy Fawkes on bonfire night, the 5th of November, the one to remember. On the one hand, it is an extension of hanging the butchered remains of dissenters from London Bridge as a warning to others. It's parading the figure of a man who tried to take down the government through the streets and burning him with the shared euphoria of a blood ritual. And I find that also just a shade disturbing. But others celebrate Fawkes and approve of his intentions to burn down a tyrannical and mass-murdering government. The Alan Moore book, V for Vendetta, uses this failed gunpowder plot and the visage of Fawkes encapsulated in a mask of anonymity to tell the story of a dystopian Britain in the iron grip of a fascist government, mirroring an even colder, even harder version of Margaret Thatcher's administration of the 1980s. So it was written at a very apropos time. This is not the first time that Britain has appeared remarkably accepting of fascist ideals in fiction and mirrored in reality, notably the 1984 film adaptation of George Orwell's 1984, starring John Hurt as the protagonist Winston Smith, was released at the same time as Alan Moore's V for Vendetta comic series was being put out there, securing Hurt an eventual role as the maniacal dictator Adam Sutler in the 2006 film. And chillingly, the Alfonso Cuaron film Children of Men, released the same year as this film, not coincidentally smack bang in the middle of the Age of Terror, depicted a Britain that has fallen to totalitarian brutality, hatred of immigrants, and unfocused, violent retaliation from the people. It is also notable, and this is something I did not know until this week, the Fox Network TV show Gotham, prequel to Batman, got its own prequel with the Epic's TV show Pennyworth, the origin of Batman's butler, and in Pennyworth, the rise of the Norse fire party makes that prequel prequel a prequel to Viva Vendetta, the film of the book. Norse fire are chillingly similar to real-world oppressive regimes, using the divine right of a ruthless, prejudicial, twisted form of religion as an excuse to claim they are doing good works amid the purest and most obvious of evil, stomping down viciously on dissent, queerness, gently living one's life in love only to be kidnapped by the police and thrown into death camps, erased, forgotten, one more obstacle out of the way of their permanently secured power. And the fact that this is adapted and produced by the Wachowskis makes it, to me, at least the best version of itself. The authenticity of two trans creators standing up for those on the bottom rung of society and spinning a wordy tale of inhumanity versus an unkillable idea. The tiny, indomitable notion that the most seemingly powerful, unendingly abominable monsters can be felled when you know how to cut them in the right places. V 
himself is played by Hugo Weaving, whose face we never see, and that's the point. He says repeatedly, There is a face beneath this mask, but it is not me. I am no more that face than I am the muscles beneath it, or the bones beneath them. And this was directed by James McTeague as well, and the, like I said before, the Wachowskis were going through a weirdly anonymous period in their uh, uh, careers. This was after the three Matrix films finished in 2003 and prior to Speed Racer. And McTeague went on to direct uh, Ninja Assassin, that movie I keep bringing up when I talk about movies that score horribly on Rotten Tomatoes, but this one in particular I really like. Victoria, Mm -hmm. you have read the book repeatedly. What are key differences between how it's presented on screen here and how it was originally presented in the series, originally released in the UK in Warrior magazine. The, the biggest two things textually that is different is that there are a lot more women characters, but the story is a lot nastier to all of them. Ah. Uh, so swings and, and roundabouts. Uh, yeah, and because it is a graphic novel, V has a lot more time to like espouse very specifically about anarchism, and it reveals a little bit bit about Alan Moore, perhaps, uh, but uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll get into that. Uh, other big things is in the graphic novel, it takes place over three years. Uh, Evie spends a lot of that time in the Shadow Gallery, sort of like training both physically and mentally to be his protege. She starts out at, nine, or at uh, 16, so she's actually a lot less politically aware starting out, which makes some of the ending stuff a lot more insidious in the graphic novel, I would say. I feel like Carrie Kelly from uh, The Dark Knight Returns was like, that was Frank Miller's clumsy attempt to kind of do this as well. Weirdly, he doesn't kill Prothero in the graphic novel. He, oh. like, in the graphic novel, he kidnaps Prothero and takes him to uh, for the... For people who've Lark- only just seen it, who's Prothero again? Sorry, the uh, in the movie, he's the voice of London. He's the... the Alex Jones. I was thinking Tucker Carlson. Uh, Both. But played by uh, the guy from Speed Racer who's like, do you want to be a real race car driver? Well, here's the the crazy thing is, since this came out in 2006, he was definitely Alex Jones, but he also is absolutely Tucker Carlson. Uh, Um, Roger Allen. That uh, is as uh, uh, Prothero, and uh, oh. honestly, the reason I go with Tucker is because Alex Jones has now already been exposed as a fraud, a charlatan, and also he's like a frothing maniac. Whereas Prothero can sort of just about keep it to, no, I'm British and we know about these things, as opposed yeah. to screaming about the turning the freaking frogs gay, where you just like the absurdism of that guy. He well, sounds now, a lot like Nigel Farage. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, and now Tucker Carlson's been deplatformed, and Has like he? he, oh yeah, he he does hit like videos out of an all wooden cabin to like oh, tiny, thank God. tiny groups oh, of people goodness. on Twitter. I was, uh, you know what? I had him the highest tipped guy to run for president for the Republicans in 2024. Uh, yeah. Uh, there, there's, I, oh, man, I made a note actually. Does he still fuck M and M's? I don't know. Just like. <laughs> <laughs> Do they have and to be giant M and M's, or just just grab a whole bowl and f- just no, just stop it's, fucking it's, it's, it? It's only the green ones. I mean, come on now. Just all these delicious candies. <laughs> They're just such teases. Where? Oh man, there was a comment that somebody made in the the weird like um, <laughs> commentary thing that was so. Oh, that they modeled Prothero after classic shock jocks and American evangelists. 
And right. it was interesting because they were like, oh, but we made sure to connect Prothero more to the, quote, nationalist fascism than any of those characters. And I'm just like, huh, I wonder what you think now. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I think you were pretty, pretty spot on. Anyway, in the graphic novel, V kidnaps Prothero, takes him to the model Lark Hill, uh, Lark Hill uh, camp that he has built and, like, tortures him there by burning his giant doll collection because he cares about the dolls more than people, which you, you can't actually see them in the background of the scene in the in the movie. Mm. Um, which is so strange why he's the one person that V doesn't kill that's part of that group. He just drives him mad. Uh, but it does explain why he has a full-scale Lark Hill uh, model when the EV thing happens later yeah. because in the movie it's like wait did he build this for this purpose like that's that's a level beyond what I would think of anybody wanting to do while See, the I figured novel. it was it was a situation where he wanted to do what he does to Evie to someone to test that person and made this for that purpose so I have I have a thought about a theory about that interestingly the mm. the real almost like I don't want to say like multiple timeline like kind of multiple like versions okay. of the same story comparing the movie and the graphic novel mm. but I really think that making Evie older and more politically aware in the movie mm-hmm. changes how V's plan goes wow. and I think that he may have been like it was originally going to go by this script but since he had the card to get in and just kill him you know, just it's tidier in a way. Yeah. Um, so it, V's much more of an opportunist in the movie and in the graphic novel. He has everything planned out from start to finish, and no one, at no point in the graphic novel, does he appear fallible in any way. So he's Batman. Okay, cool. He's he's almost like less human than Batman right. in in a weird way. And in the movie, more human than Batman. <laughs> Sorry. I, I I think in the movie they've actually done a really good job of like humanizing yeah, him, and giving him like emotions and. Things uh, when I say to. like Batman, what I mean is like Batman as those dudes who refuse to believe Batman can ever be beaten by anyone is. If you actually look at Batman, he gets punked by the ventriloquist. Like, anyone can have a pop at Batman. He's not that prepared. But these guys are like, no, uh, because Batman would, like, bring his, like, special anti-ventriloquism sponge out. Yeah. A couple other little things. In the in the graphic novel, Gordon is just, like, a criminal, and there's a weird side plot about Scottish gangs moving into London and causing problems. It's a little impenetrable for Which me. Which one's but, like, Gordon again? Uh, Dietrich. Fry. Uh, Stephen Fry. Oh, God, I yeah. love him in this. He's so good yeah. in this, in the movie. Uh, but yeah, he's kind of a nothing character in the graphic novel. It's okay. very strange. He gets stabbed by a sword. It's very, like, by, by not V. I don't, it's very strange. Mm. Some other weird things in the graphic novel, Finch takes LSD and goes on a wild trip in Lark Hill's ruins, and that's how he gets, like, he, like, understands the whole story. While in the movie, he just drinks a lot of whiskey and doesn't Does sleep for research. days. Uh, which one's yeah. Finch? Is that Stephen Rea? Right, yeah. Right. yeah, he's he's the detective. I have a lot to say about the differences in that character too. I uh, do feel like they very deliberately cast someone who would very much ring Irish Catholic. He he's for great. that role. Honestly, the casting in this movie is incredible. Yeah. Uh, in general, uh, I think the only other real big thing that I. Th- that is worth mentioning. There's there's a weird side thing where like Dominic, the assistant uh, detective, and Evie sort of like end up together in the end. And there's even a flash of that in the movie, but that's like meaningless. But the really big thing is, 
in the graphic novel, he's not he's not named Sutler, but it's the same character. The the leader of the party John is obs- Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It, it's like Susan's his last name in the graphic novel, okay. and um, he is obsessed with a supercomputer that they have built that takes care of every aspect of society and running society, and they call it Fate. Right. And and given the kind of playing with fate and coincidence in the movie, like it's kind of bonkers in the graphic novel compared to everything else. It's the most like obviously science fictiony thing, but the the party leader's shtick in the graphic novel is he is in love with this computer and incapable of forming connections with other people. Right. And, so it seems uh, like Moore is uh, going out of his way to carve out villains that have such obvious flaws and fallibilities that they cannot recognize in themselves, and so they lash outwards. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's like every single major party member, much like we see in the movie, mm-hmm. have incredibly, like, horrific, like, like personal aspects to them that either alienates them from humanity, uh, like, makes them just utterly sociopathic or incapable of any kind of communalist action. This uh, reminds me of Bioshock, by the way. Remember how, like, it used to be structured where you'd go from one crazed, charismatic, but obviously just really horrible, dangerous, and at the same time kind of sad figure to another as they would sort of like they would throw their philosophy at you and it would all be madness but you'd see the kernel of where they started mm-hmm. and obviously Bioshock riven with problems by today's standards and especially as it's been so fucking misinterpreted by so many dudes over the years who sort of throw at you aggressively a man chooses a slave obeys I didn't listen at all I didn't learn oh. anything but please Alex is a man not entitled to the, the sweat, sweat of, of his, his brow, brow? Um, no, <laughs> says the man in Washington. If he wants it, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, no, it, it's uh, the way you're, you're putting it like that. It is much more sort of a structured uh, ability to sort of like pick apart if you had a fascist society that was run by like all of these just terrible men, how their own psychoses would impact millions of people Hmm. well that from what you were saying about the the nazi party the the computer called fate kind of uh being echoed in a way by all of the the coincidences and and connections throughout the film one of the the notes that i made was about the possible reasons for why there are no coincidences and it kind of made me feel like there's an underpinning of everything in this world is connected together. So it's not necessarily that it's it's coincidence or fate or anything like that. It's more the fact that if you if you heal one part of the whole, then that has a healing effect on the whole. And if you poison one part of the whole, then that has an effect on the whole thing. So that the idea that the villains would be people who, for for various reasons, are isolated from that whole and cut off from it and therefore lash out and stab at it, causing damage to literally everyone else, because everyone else is all connected together. There's there's another layer to it that I, I, I think is really important as well, because in the graphic novel, the point is essentially that the fascists have eliminated coincidence and chance, and they are in control of fate. Yeah. Like, literally, with this thing. Like, everyone's fate, and that they can... It's all cause and effect, it's not... <sighs> this also is... Mark Millar read this and went, right, I'll do that with Wanted. 
Yes. And oh, uh, yes. the the Russian filmmaker, who's the guy who did Night Watch? It's Timur Bekmambatov. The director of the film went even further towards that whole machine that does that dictates fate. With oh, the, the oh thing. the loom, the loom, the loom of fate. Right? Yeah. Right. Oh boy. But so the, in the graphic novel, it is it is found that V has essentially a backdoor into fate and has been toying with them the whole time by changing it and manipulating it. And in the graphic novel, V talks a lot about cause and effect and saying that there's not really coincidences. It's all dominoes. You set them up, you knock them down. And the movie subverts that because when V's about to go off on cause and effect being the appropriate thing, Evie throws it back in his face and it makes him back down. Because, and also in the movie, there are genuine coincidences that are not really anything more than, uh, like it's not part of that, con- that interweaving connected cause and effect. And I think that's very intentional. And it uh, makes V more away. reactive as a, uh, a anti-villain. Like, uh, he's a hero, but he's very violent and does things that certain people would call terrorism. Yeah, and, and he says, you know, violence can be used for good, justice, and all and all of that. Mm. Uh, like, we'll get to it, but I think it's really important that they did that, because in the graphic novel, V is not as far from a lot of the fascist ideals as he might want to be like it does sound like he's going for supreme control if like they've built a computer for supreme control but if i go in there and i hack it then i have supreme control so so not exactly because v says in the graphic novel that his purpose is he is the destroyer because Mm. anarchy must wear two faces in order to create a better future a better world one face of anarchy must be the destroyer and create the rubble that the other face the creator will make a canvas of i think the biggest conflict is the fact that it's essentially a superhero comic book and superheroes have some things in common with some fascistic ideals like a single strong man who will come and save the day much more individualistic than uh communalistic a lot more uh, of these other, you know, th- these there's an ubermensch uh, sort of like this. This is the exceptional person who can save us, but I'm not going to stand here and wait. I'll hold on to the wings of the eagles and watch as they all fly away. So saith Chad Croker. <laughs> yeah, and and that's why I think in the graphic novel it's important that V intends to be killed when his job is done. Right. He he is like I am here to be the destroyer to do this. I am not the one to lead. That is against what I believe in. And he is grooming Evie in a way to be the creator. But in the end of the graphic novel, Evie actually dons the V outfit Mm. to go out and finish the job because V has been shot and killed at this point. The explosives are on their way, but the people are getting like restless because they've been told that V will make an appearance. And if he makes an appearance, then the explosion is going to happen and they can all like welcome a new a new society kind of thing. So Evie goes out and makes a big speech about how the uh, the news of my death has been greatly exaggerated, I believe. And the whole thing is showing that the culmination of this like training, this education has been to make her into a kind of V. And investigator Dominic, the the in the movie, he's the the second investigator. Uh, he's running away from the mobs after the, everybody like starts basically celebrating, and she saves him and takes him to the shadow gallery. And she does not 
remove the V costume for the rest of the graphic novel. Right, so she has effectively picked up the mantle. Yeah, and it's this idea that, like, the character of V can will be both the destroyer and creator. It's just that the first person who was in there was the destroyer, and the second person was the creator, right. which still, again, goes against a lot of the ideals that he even talks about, because anarchy is about, like, community and people working together in a way without having hierarchy. That's sort of the point. And it's so about tearing having, it down rather than seizing control and maintaining that control, which yeah. keeping V in the shadows doing V's thing is is a measure of perpetuating a status quo. Yeah, and, and the graphic novel ends there, so we don't actually get to see whether or not it's, like, it actually is that or if it's more going to be, like, V as Evie, uh, or Evie as V, like, bringing the art and such from the Shadow Gallery back to the people and, like, letting them be, like, like essentially educating them because a big part of the graphic novel is also saying that without knowledge and education, you can't really make a good society, which, I mean, yeah, that's sort of why fascistic regimes lean on disinformation so much. And restrict um, education over and over again until everyone is stupid and malleable. And access mm. to art, because God forbid anybody start feeling. Exactly. And you turn people against intellectuals mm-hmm, and experts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's a big uh, thing from the graphic novel that I, I remember when I first watched the movie uh, years ago. Well, maybe not when I first watched the movie, but when I was watching the movie years ago, I was always like, I wonder why they didn't end the movie with Evie putting on the V-mask. And now I have a dissertation-length uh, reason as to why I think they went go the way they did. It. Oh no, well, we should get there at the end because ah. uh, we should go through the movie. Okay. I, I have I have now gone through the graphic novel. I have foreshadowed many things that will be important as we go. I'm sure, but I, I but the movie I think is in many ways the superior text for the story at this point. While the graphic yeah. novel is very interesting, is very good. Um, works kind of as a beginner's primer to anarchism written by a person who I don't think knows what anarchy is. Um, (laughs) I could recommend a whole lot of other books, and I will by the end of this, I'm sure. But I think the people who made the movie had a much better understanding of what they were trying to do, even if during the commentary it sure didn't sound like they wanted to talk about the fact that this movie was political. Mm. Uh, so they kept talking about, I made a nice popcorn action movie that might, when you go home, make you think a little bit. <laughs> and I'm just like, buddy, what are you talking about? This is... Well, this it's is... one of those kind of, we wash our hands of it, like, for the actual promotional purposes. It's It's got a lot of things in there, you know? It's, it's got but some poli- this is the politics. Thing, the Wachowskis are really good at this. Like, they'll, they'll get this... Um, political text and then they'll roll it up real small and slide it into a wafer and put that wafer in an ice cream cone and fill it up with as much sauce and sprinkles as you can possibly manage. At the end when V <laughs> stabs all those uh, the, the SS police with his knives over a short space of time stretched up to a long space of time through slow-mo it's very stylized and it's very ba 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 matrix but it is the cherry on top of a cake where the rest of the cake is very bitter and and like they, they got you into the cinema to see those knife fights but really it's about the other stuff it's about the cake itself <laughs> i actually don't have a blow by blow of exactly what happens in the exact movements in this film because i think the ideas presented in it are more 
engaging and expansive in terms of what can be talked about. The short of it is Evie is a PA played by Natalie Portman. She lives in this crappy 80s looking Britain run by these fascists. And everything's like this was very familiar to me, and I'm assuming Sharon as well. But having grown up in the eighties, mm. like the the clothes, the houses, the terraces, it it felt very authentic to that end. And there's nothing futuristic about it. It feels like it's an alternate past. Go, but but that is intentional. Yeah, yeah. Specifically looking at like the 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 London of twenty years previous and the London of then, and then looking at the London in like twenty twenty, assuming that the like society had remained in stasis yeah. due to the totalitarian regime which i think is like really a good good insight on yeah. their part on specifically how because the totalitarian regime wants to keep everything static and Absolutely. not develop and anything that's the thing because they are the, the the whole point of fascism is that you're trying to keep a rigid grip on change and forward momentum um, it's and, antithetical and to evolution of every single kind absolutely you're you're using it to reassure people who are terrified of change and therefore literally nothing can change because the second you start letting anything uh, grow and progress, the people who've put you in that position start to think that you you are not as committed to this holding everything in place idea as they thought. But that's the thing, it wasn't dialing everything back, it was holding it in place. That's yeah. why Joel Silver yeah. was a bit confused, but uh, it's, well, it's an alternate well, history. Well, remember, I mean, one of the cornerstones of fascism is hearkening back to a fictional time wherein your yeah. national like like identity was stronger. It is the make America great again, the make Britain great again. And I, I remembered that in the backstory section of the graphic novel, they actually have make Britain great again, one of the taglines for Norse fire. It was just a moment. I, I had a moment when I was reading that. Yeah, uh, pre-lapsarian is the uh, the mentality that everything was great in the past, and then this group came along and changed everything. And if we got rid of this group, these are your the actual true oppressors. These are the ones fucking everything up. Get rid of them. Then we can have super strong men who are just really good at killing things. But ultimately, the past that you're trying to pull everything back to never existed. It's you, you are you are homesick for a time period that was never real because you're being either, held captive by violent obsessed nerds. Either it's well before your lifetime and therefore you don't really remember what it was like or it's from your childhood and the time that you're actually wanting to get back to is the time when you knew less shit about the world than you do now. Yeah. That's what you really want, is to be less in the know about the crap that everybody has to well, do. Well, line up at the gate, I've got lobotomies for all. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Evie uh, is uh, just trying to walk home, and she gets grabbed by a bunch of fingermen who have a very specific rapey name. Uh, they, they're the SS, the, 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 or the Gestapo-ish, yeah. but not even them. They're like the Snatchers. They're like the, the, the guys who was, answer to the Gestapo. Yeah. Can I provide one little bit of nuance there? Go for it. Uh, in the graphic novel, she's actually going out and trying to prostitute herself because she is living in such a destitute situation right. because it's way, way darker in the graphic novel, and they are, quote, fingermen. And in the movie, she's actually going to a date with... Stephen Fry's character, right. Gordon Dietrich, um, which is sort of a whole thing later on. So it's like a lot nicer as to why she's out there. But these cops are still just the worst. Mm. Um, I have a question 
that I wrote in my notes from that earlier scene right before she leaves. Why does she have the TV on to the the voice of London? Like, why does she have it on at all? So she can, in disgust, turn it off and feel superior? That's how people watch TV in Britain. Hate watching. Is it really? You, just, you, oh. you, just, you have the news on in the background or, or BBC or, or something all the time just to have sound um, in the house. Also, there were only three channels when I was born, when Sharon was born. My guess is they got rid of one of them and then they got rid of the other one. So that's TV. Yeah, it's, it's the yeah. equivalent of like pre-TV always having the wireless on just to have yeah. something in the house. Huh, because they do mention at one point that there are like only a few channels. They, they mention it's like one, two, and three or something yeah. like that. And, but, but like V also has it on, which seems... He wants to keep informed and he's hate watching it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, as somebody it, who hasn't it, it watched actual TV Parallels in, like, with people just like having YouTube on all the time. These are all Fermian arguments. The reality is this was a movie directed by James McTeague. He needs to tell you stuff. Right, right, right. I mean, a lot of the other times where I wrote a note where I'm like, why is this? I I go on to be like, So the movie can happen. Well, no, but it's like, this speaks to the character in these ways or like, why did, like how it deviated. But that was the one that I'm just like, this is horrible. Why would you watch this if you didn't already agree with it? Um, So anyways... (laughs) That is absolutely fine. Um, so, before she gets fingered by the finger men uh, and dragged in for being a woman, <laughs> the uh, V turns up, and um, I think he, he he delivers that wonderful uh, speech that uh, Victoria did uh, earlier, and uh, then he he gets really slices and dices with those uh, blades of his, and the finger men get defingered. And uh, then he takes uh, Evie away in a way that is so manifestly Phantom of the Opera style, but done in between the original book of the Phantom of the Opera and multiple adaptations of it, including the cinematic ones with, uh, like, uh, who was the Phantom of the Opera? Lon Chaney or, uh, yeah. And the Andrew Lloyd Webber one, which came out in 1986, many years after the last issue of V for Vendetta was published. Now, I don't think Andrew Lloyd Webber sat and read through V for Vendetta, but there are some alarming similarities in terms of the, you know... is similarly theatrical. Uh, but the, the whole, like, um, h- hiding his face behind a mask, having this all-black outfit, his super theatricality, but this is, like, Phantom was entirely self-invested. He only ever cared about himself and, I suppose, Christine, but as a extension of himself. It was all, it was out of vanity. Whereas V almost erases himself and his specifically, you know, I am just a living embodiment of an idea I no longer exist. This is there well, the, is no life the, in these the, veins. The fact that he uses the mask as like this it's it's a symbol of both anonymity and plurality. So the mask is no one and therefore when he's wearing it no one knows who he is, but the mask also can be anyone. Mm. And he is not for nothing anonymous started wearing these masks well, almost immediately after indeed. this film. But the the, the image and, and um, the sort of the theatricality of how he interacts with the surface world 
is very he's utilizing the the traits of the romantic hero and and in this particular instance he is literally saving her from the grisly rapists that are going to take her away and do bad things this rapscallion robin of hooded reputation risks reprisal and revenges reconnaissance by resisting regulation racketeers his raison d'etre renders him a recalcitrant rapier repelling the reprehensible reviling ruffians from this rosy-cheeked receptionist rescuing her from ruination and rendering a revival of the righteous rebellious renegade remaining within resultantly raining retribution upon the rigid restrictive repressive ruling rotters The way that that then transitions to when he's in his own place, and I, I thought this was absolutely fascinating, and I don't know, Victoria, you can tell me whether this uh, is reflected in the book as well. If not, this is genius, because I, I love the way it presents uh, V as a character and, and helps you to start to connect with him as a person and, and um, sort of sympathise with his ideals, rather than just seeing him as the anonymous mask that's that's representative of the, the counter to the fascism. But once he gets into his own place, he should be in his element. But he looks totally awkward. He's still wearing the romantic hero outfit. He's still wearing the mask. He's still wearing the wig. He's also wearing a floral pinny. And it just, it just makes it look like even here, he cannot be himself. Now, whether that is just because Evie is there or whether it's because by this point, the mask is him. He has given himself over entirely to this persona. But I just found that, that, that sense of, you know, he can be the rapier twirling uh, masked hero out on the streets, but he's not that at home. So in the graphic novel, he, he never changes costume. He is always the the mask, the black, everything. And the fact that in the movie, he does have the apron on and cooks breakfast and like sings and is just kind of like more personable. And then he, he has like a slightly different outfit on when he's when he's fighting his um, suit of armor. His personality, his entire like who he is, his identity is this media obsessed nerd of similar things and he has become that figure while in the graphic novel it's a lot more insidious like this is all he is he is not a person beyond that in the movie i feel like it really shows his compassionate side to a certain extent or like his at least attempts to relate to other people and the fact that he really is into movies something that is explicitly not in the graphic novel it's just books in the graphic novel and in the in the movie it's everything it's, it's movies, it's graphic novels, it's music, it's it, it's all kinds of, of stuff that he is just, he, he loves art and he loves the story and the theatricality and he has developed his entire persona because his previous persona was erased by what had happened in Lark Hill. So he had to develop a whole new persona based on these other pieces of media, which to a certain extent feels kind of weirdly relatable maybe I, I don't i don't necessarily want to speak out of hand myself but like as explicitly not a man uh having had to play one in real life for so long i i kind of get it i had a certain level of like over-the-top dramatis persona that my um that that i know at least one person can uh, attest to the one person who to this day still calls me v which i think is very funny you want to build a persona and all you have is the media that speaks to you. And for some people, it's um, 
you know, the old black and white movies or classic books. For other people, it's Bioshock. It's, you know, YouTube personalities or whatever. Uh, you know, Alex it, Jones. And, yeah, or Alex <laughs> Jones. I mean, yeah, to a certain extent. If you don't have a strong enough understanding of what your ideals and philosophy are, you are able to be enculturated into a variety of different ways. Now he has her here and he gets to sort of espouse his uh, philosophy to her. He does take her back home. She goes to work the next day and he attacks Jordan Tower right. before she ends up in the Shadow Gallery. And that is a different thing from the, the graphic novel. In the graphic novel, he goes straight to the Shadow Gallery with her. Um, and it's... It's interesting to me. Oh, I just used the word, but ah, but you're about to elaborate on it. I'm about to. It's only bad if you go. It's interesting, interesting. and then say nothing more. (laughs) In the graphic novel, he blows up Jordan Tower, uh, and 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 removes the ability of the regime from uh, sending their propaganda to the masses. Uh, And in the movie, he uh, Dascom, who is impeccable casting. saves the tower from the bomb that has been placed there while V is escaping. And V has, like, the dilemma of taking Evie with him. Why is it that V can't blow up Jordan Tower? And the simple answer is Stephen Fry has to do his show later in Jordan Tower. But I think to a better, to an even more important extent, it shows that this version of V in the movie is fallible. He is not just an agent of of cause and effect. He is not just a natural force. He is a person still, and that he set up this bomb and someone was able to foil that. But that doesn't mean that his plans are not going to continue forward. It makes for such a a kind of tense scene because he even, he, he makes them play the speech, the video speech to all of the masses, which they also do in the graphic novel, except the one in the graphic novel is way nastier. And What's the one I, in the graphic novel? Or is it, uh, are you able to read it or? I, I mean, if you want, he, 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 he starts that, with- that uh, perspective. I do want to say though, in the movie, whenever he is uh, giving that speech in the video, the it very specifically cuts to three people who are watching it, Evie, uh, Gordon Dietrich, the Stephen Fry character, and Finch, the main detective, who are essentially, in a way, the three people who are, I don't want to say radicalized necessarily, but they're the people who kind of come around to V's side in very specific and important ways mm. over the course of the, the movie, Evie being the most significant, obviously, but the other two having their parts to play. Oh, this, okay, here it is. He starts out by saying... Good evening, London. I thought at time we had a little talk. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. I suppose you're wondering why I've called you here this evening. Well, you see, I'm not entirely satisfied with your performance lately. I'm afraid your work's been slipping and, and well, I'm afraid we've been thinking about letting you go. Oh, I know, I know, you've been with the company a long time now. Almost, let me see, almost 10,000 years. My word, doesn't time fly? It seems like only yesterday. I remember the day you commenced your employment, swinging down from the trees, fresh-faced and nervous, a bone clasped in your bristling fist. Where do I start, sir? You asked plaintively. I recall my exact words. There's a pile of dinosaur eggs over there, youngster, I said, smiling paternally the while. Get sucking. (laughs) 
and that's where it's, it goes in just just much nastier directions talking about like the utter failure of humanity to stick up for itself and so he tells all of humanity in london that yeah yeah okay that, and it, goes it feels like he'd, he'd have had a much harder job after that getting everyone on side he'd need a serious face turn absolutely uh and, and it's it's basically shaming the population into not building a better society and to becoming complacent through uh like comfort and security yeah. while giving up their freedom which is like what he says in the movie but he's so much more like nice about it like yeah. he's so much more he's, uh, relatable he's less of a dick well he's yeah. he's framing it in a way that allows the audience to recognize that the people have allowed this to happen because they're scared not simply because they they want home comforts and they want to be well off and they want to have everything the way that that they like it can i can we move to maybe the most uh, i suppose upsetting sequence of the movie uh, if you've never seen the movie before this one kind of it, it feels like something you've been dreading but then when you get the reveal after i know you know exactly what bit i'm going for uh, v at one point about uh middle end of act two uh, evie gets grabbed and hauled into a concentration camp and she has her head shaved and she is uh, locked in a jail cell and she is left and starved and she's fed a little bit of food and she's interrogated and her captor demands that she give up v but she will not comply she's terrified and she's fairly certain she's going to die and then she starts to discover little notes being passed to her uh, in her cell from a, a cellmate and I know there's no way I can convince you this is not one of their tricks but I don't care I am me my name is Valerie I don't think I'll live much longer and I wanted to tell someone about my life this is the only autobiography that I will ever write and God I'm writing it on toilet paper. I was born in Nottingham in 1985. I don't remember much of those early years, but I do remember the rain. My grandmother owned a farm in Tottlebrook, and she used to tell me that God was in the rain. I passed my 11 plus and went to a girl's grammar. It was at school that I met my first girlfriend. Her name was Sarah. It was her wrists. They were beautiful. I thought we would love each other forever. I remember our teacher telling us that it was an adolescent phase that people outgrew. Sarah did. I didn't. In 2002, I fell in love with a girl named Christina. That year, I came out to my parents. I couldn't have done it without Chris holding my hand. My father wouldn't look at me. He told me to go and never come back. My mother said nothing. Not only told them the truth, was that so selfish? Our integrity selves were so little, but it is all we really have. It is the very last inch of us. But within that inch, we are free. I'd always known what I wanted to do with my life, and in 2015, I starred in my first film, The Salt Flats. It was the most important role of my life, not because of my career, but because that was how I met Ruth. The first time we kissed, I knew I never wanted to kiss any other lips but hers again. 
We moved to a small flat in London together. She grew scarlet castles for me in our window box, and our place always smelt of roses. Those were the best years of my life. But America's war grew worse and worse, and eventually came to London. The bill proposed by the Under Secretary for Defence, Adam Sutler, to close the remaining tube stations passed with their universal. After that, there were no roses anymore. I remember how the meaning of words began to change. How unfamiliar words like collateral and rendition became frightening. While things like Norsefire and the Articles of Allegiance became powerful. I remember how different became dangerous. I still don't understand it. Why they hate us so much. They took Ruth while she was out buying food. I've never cried so hard in my life. It wasn't long till they came for me. It seems strange that my life should end in such a terrible place. But for three years, I had roses and apologized to no one. I shall die here. Every inch of me shall perish. Every inch but one. An inch. It is small and it is fragile. And it is the only thing in the world worth having. We must never lose it or give it away. We must never let them take it from us. I hope that whoever you are, you escape this place. I hope that the world turns and that things get better. But what I hope most of all is that you understand what I mean when I tell you that even though I do not know you, and even though I may never meet you, laugh with you, cry with you or kiss you I love you with all my heart I love you Valerie it is perhaps telling that this entire sequence is taken almost word for word from the graphic novel mm. And it is pretty brutal to watch. Um, and I, man, so Valerie's story of compassion and, and love and just absolute iron against this violence is, is so, is, um, I don't want to say relatable, but like, it is a depiction of like a minoritized experience in the rise of a totalitarian regime and refusing to let like even the smallest like the, the absolute smallest part like one's integrity leave you I, I think it's also very telling that the one thing that they remove from the movie is in the graphic novel Ruth is tortured and gives up Valerie and Valerie forgives her which in the movie absolutely not they are lesbians therefore they are infallible i mean they are uh, <laughs> but it, it is just this beautiful romance this beautiful story that is juxtaposed with this violence that's being done to v and or to, to evie uh and in 
the movie, they do a really good job of hiding the fact that V is the one who is behind all of it, that it's all a performance. It is lies to tell the truth. And it's to convey the story he was told in his cell by like the the story is real he's merely passing it on to her because but he has to simulate those conditions and she has to believe she is going to die and and it's so gosh there's so many different angles to it because v is trying to tell his story v is trying to give her the opportunity quote unquote in his mind to live without fear to go through what he went through to come out the other side as strong and steadfast and iron as he is and because he is essentially it is it is like a instructive or radicalization process to the same state as v but it is it is important to see that going through nearly the same experience they do come out of it in very different ways and that is I think perhaps a, a harkening back to that destroyer creator kind of thing. V is yeah. created, is reborn in fire. Ev is reborn in water. In water. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's not a million miles shy of a very, very elongated, protracted version of. Were you listening to Melio, or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? Why, look again. And then the agent Smith, played by Hugo Weaving, sticks a gun in Neo's face, and then. Morpheus pauses the simulation. That took seconds. V stretches his out to EV for a very long time to illustrate how hard the system is. And and part of me wants to make a joke that the whole thing is a metaphor for the act of educating and reading anarchist philosophy. But um, but it, it's I mean reading it's way more fun than that. But it, <laughs> so you could at it, least have a cup of tea. Yeah, but it's it's just this idea that like it does require you to a certain extent to reevaluate anything like everything that you find comfortable, everything in life, like how you how you look at things, how you value other people, how you value yourself, and like being willing to live for others rather than the selfishness of living for oneself, and it is. Um, heightened, obviously, it comes from a graphic novel that is essentially a superhero uh, story. It's in a movie that is essentially an action superhero film, so it is extremely heightened in these ways. But it is absolutely brutal. And there's a reason why I think a lot of uh, people talk about Stockholm Syndrome when it comes to these scenes and, and Evie's response to it. I would say. She in no way, like, beats the shit out of him as much as she should. <laughs> Well, in the graphic novel, she's absolutely, like, forgives him almost immediately and is on board. And I'm like, okay, Stockholm Syndrome's not, like, real, real, but, like, this is a pretty good representation of what they're talking about. But in the movie, she doesn't physically attack him, but she is vicious, mm, yeah. like, verbally and she emotionally to him at up. very key moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because he said he shows her the rose room and says like what they it's cause and effect. What they did to me was monstrous, and she says, and they created a monster and does not let up. And then she leaves and does not come back until the end because there is some aspect of it that did change Evie for the for the better, quote unquote, whatever, however you want to look at that. That she does see the world. It changed in... her for the proactive, as opposed yeah. to the ah, things that's... happen to her. And all she can do is quail. 
Yes, she, she's become a, a much better at understanding like the world and society and people and like how to, to do things and to stand up for herself. She starts the movie in a very like meek and frightened place, wanting to hide, wanting to uh, like seek comfort. And in the end, she has something else to live for. She's which... the human weakness that says, if I just stay still and don't do anything, maybe the fascists won't kill me. Yeah, and in the end, she's a lot stronger than that as far as her ideals and her convictions and wanting to have a better world. Now, again, the means ends, we can talk a lot about that because, boy, I do think V's uh, decision here is extremely uh, brutal, is, is very extreme, and it is incredible to to see actually depicted, like, straight-faced on, on film in a lot of ways. Um, and and uh, they, they said that they specifically shot the scenes after Evie comes out to talk to V for the first time after the, the torture sequences. That was Those were the first scenes that they shot uh, right. with between the two of them. So they were they didn't really have any understanding of like how their characters bounced off of each other. So it's very stilted and very like awkward as it should be after yeah. that. And it's as opposed to yeah. it could actually have fallen back on being too familiar that's quite shrewd in terms of uh structuring your filming absolutely and i like i'm not saying that like in order to make people not fascist or to make people embrace anarchist ideals we should torture them in fake concentration camps we're, we're, we're getting a little um, tyler durden if we go down that path i think yeah right <laughs> And it, it, I think it is a very extreme rendition of a process of like education and reevaluating one's life that I feel like is kind of, re I mean, it was resonant for me. Again, I, I should have mentioned the, uh, like, I am by no means like an anarchist like scholar. I have done an enough, enough reading to be dangerous. I don't speak for everyone. I would never speak for everyone. Uh, for me, I did find it kind of resonant, this idea of going through hardship, being forced upon you, and refusing to wilt under it. Um, you know, not to go into any specifics, like, I have been in hardship forced upon me by the system and people in power, uh, and that I had to make the decision of either agreeing to and conforming to or to stand up for myself live authentically and refuse to back down so there's an element to it that does feel very personally resonant even if the depiction of it the specific metaphor is abhorrent if that makes any sense yes. yeah I, I think it in the way that the scenes are shot as well there's something pretty that, that seems pretty intentional about the fact that when all the, the camera is all focused on Evie and you can see what's being do, done to her, you can see hands holding her and, and you know, administering the various tortures and, and uh, pains and, and experiences that she, she goes through. And that kind of I mean I don't know if this this is the same for everybody who sees it but it it was for me when she walks out and realizes what the actual scenario is you can almost see it dawn on her that all of those hands were him he works alone every one of those tortures was administered by him hmm. and and she has to come to terms with that and I actually think that part of her her 
not what's the word tempering not strengthening tempering and the fact that it, you have that juxtaposition where it cuts back and forth between him coming out in the fire and her going out into the rain is that he's thinking it's the tortures that that gained you that strength and that made you realize who you are and what you have that that inch of integrity that you have inside you but realizing that he was the one who'd done it to her is like the last piece of the puzzle slotting into place and that's where she gets tempered in a different way to him because for him all of those terrible things were done to him by people who didn't know him who didn't care who he was who would, he was he was just a test subject it wasn't even done for any deliberate we hate you and we want to hurt you personally it was just completely you're a thing for us to use so his experience is that hers is this person i thought cared about me put me through all of that in order to make me stronger well it is but maybe not in the way that he intended because the people who imprisoned him did not pass him the notes. What he's giving her is the context around the thing that really brought him to life. But she isn't able to put that all together until she realises what the situation is. So he was christened in fire, she was baptised in water, Mm -hmm. he can only destroy and she can bring life. Yeah, and he, he cannot, in that scene where she goes out into the rain, he cannot follow her. He stays inside not being rained on and it almost feels like I can't remember whether she actually does this or whether it feels like she does this but he tries to kind of speak to her or follow her or something and she effectively goes no this is for me you stay there he he, hand, he tries to hand her like a coat that's it the coat and she just walks out from underneath it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think on another level it's really important uh, in a way because in the beginning Evie is uh, an attractive white woman in a fascistic regime somebody who is like you know a second class citizen but not she's useful to the male fascists she's likely to be prized so so she's kind of depicted in a way as that kind of like neoliberal centrist kind of mindset of like i have my comfort i have what is mine supported just enough by the system and I will do performative actions. I will turn off the TV and say, that's quite enough of that, thanks. Uh, even though I had it on in the first place to hate watch it. Um, and so she'll, she'll do those kinds of actions. That might be the answer to your question, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I just realized that might be habit. the answer to my question. That it's reinforcing that centrist uh, kind of like perspective, that, that like unactivated. But then whenever you uh, put somebody like that in a situation where they experience what it is to be minoritized in that kind of state, then they can become activated. I mean, it, it sort of goes back to the joke of like, why is every trans girl an anarchist? Well, I mean, try living in this system. Yes, there's, just a twirled. <laughs> this system, not too kind. No. Yeah. And so I, I think there might be some, some bit of metaphor there of showing this, depicting her in that way and then like the activation of being essentially an activist by the end to do something greater. Did you know, Victoria, that we live in a society and I think that it's important that Joker (laughs) tells us about this society that we live in. Anyway. Wow. You know what? With that revelation, I'm going to become the Joker. (laughs) (laughs) And dance we shall. Okay, so back to your favourite, Stephen Fry as Gordon. Now, for context here... When V blows up, what does he blow up first on the 1st, 5th of November? Because there's one at the beginning and then one at the end of the year. It's the Old Bailey. The Old Bailey, that's it. He blows it up. And it's very deliberately done in a way that you're supposed to be cheering. 
And then the Misinformation Act turns up and says, oh, yeah, we totally intended to blow up the old Bailey and, uh, you know, just want to see off the old girl with a little bit of extra theatricality and, and try to completely and utterly crush the possibility of people believing that perhaps Norse Fire are losing control even in any capacity. But, but this is an, another trick for fascists to remain in control. What you can't suppress, you spin. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's disinformation and violence, the yeah. two things in the fascist playbook. They're so boring, by the way. I Fascists know, are so fucking boring. Get some new strategies, for the love of God. Well, that's because well, they automatically don't trust media and art, and they try to make their own, and they're terrible at it. Because yes. in aspect, so to create good art, one must be able to see reality, mm. and Fascists there is such don't a live level. In reality, they force everyone else to live in their fucking screwball dream. Exactly. They, they've utilized weaponized unreality and disinformation to the point where they believe it. So, or at least they have to performatively believe it, depending upon who we're talking about. But the, but that ultimately means that you have become so out of touch with reality, you can't enjoy things anymore. Yeah. So the, the deliberate misinformation is, is going on there. V then hacks the airwaves and does the uh, movie-friendly version of that speech that you started earlier about how we're all a bunch of apes and we're idiots. However, <laughs> Stephen Fry plays Gordon, who is kind of a, a sort of a... He's like a Jay Leno, like a yeah. late-night host. I was going to say guy. Terry Wogan, but I'm not sure Americans would know who that was. It's, it's Jay Leno, same principle. Yeah, yeah. a talk show host <laughs> who does sort of warm, approachable things, and like he's not going to be challenging anyone or anything. And he is... And when Evie gets to see his basement, he's hiding things down there, like the Koran and God gay things. And like, he's obviously a gay man, having to masquerade as a straight man, played beautifully and delicately by Stephen Fry, who had just this slight shiftiness about him, where you're like, oh, please don't be like really horrible and have unsavory tastes. And then it just, he becomes one of the sweetest, most decent people in this whole film, if, if not the most. And... No, I, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm putting up, up up at the top. No one goes higher because he eventually stages a comedy skit on his show whereby John Hurt's supreme leader turns up on the show, played by some clever impersonator, and then ends up sort of Benny Hilling around the place with another duplicate. And they both end up getting shot after a lot of bonking on the head and making people laugh at them. And that's one of the things fascists hate most in the world. The idea that someone would laugh at them because they can't control that. And I... it's, it is Gordon knowing he's signing his own death warrant, but that this will be a deep, deep cut. Ah, so... I would I would posit that the one the one difference there is that in the movie he does not believe he is signing his own death warrant. He ah. he believes that his that he he's just gonna do some apology and whatever and their ratings will go through the roof. He even says it, you know, he I should have hired my agent to be my mother. Wow. Um, I, honestly I, I read that as him just fobbing E B off with no no no, I know I'm going to the fucking chamber for this one. Then we'll just just take me out back and put one in the head. Maybe they'll torture me to death, darling. I think he would have been a lot less uh obviously afraid whenever they raided his house, if yeah. that were the case. Yeah, he's uh, he would sitting there been... with a look of uh, serenity on his face of, yes, yes, here you are. Yeah, that that's, I think that's the real One the last real thing brandy, there. old boy. There we go. I do also love that John Hurd insisted on playing himself as both roles yeah. in that when they were filming it, yeah. which is great. That's um, great. 
But yeah, I literally wrote, like, this is Gordon's own explosion. This is him essentially blowing up the Bailey. Uh, this is how, and, and this is reminds me a lot of how fascists use humor, because fascists use irony as a way of floating various unsavory ideas. It's like, oh, I'm not, I don't really believe that. I'm just joking. Unless you're into it, then I do believe it. Um, but the other side of that Heavy is wink. how heavy wink but the other side of that is how much fascists hate to be embarrassed mm-hmm. and again because they're not able to connect with reality or media they're actually really bad at anything other than like detached ironic humor mm-hmm. this is essentially like throwing the eggs or a milkshake at like a, a fascist on on camera and or or even that um God, that video from years ago with the the fascist guy getting punched yeah, in the face. This is like, a pin with uh, what's his name? The uh, Pepe the Frog. Pepe the Frog. Neo Nazis don't love me. They kind of hate me actually. NATO's people don't like me. Are you like the hipster version of the Neo Nazi movement? It's Pepe's become kind of a symbol. But Stephen Fry doesn't punch John Hurt. He just makes a daft Benny Hill skit for his TV show, poking fun at a politician. And it's very telling that the fascist response is violence. That like, what did, it's like, oh, they have made a joke at my expense. I am so embarrassed. I will burn everything down. Is Wild like the, overreaction. The because the other, yeah. the other aspect of reality that they cannot connect with is um, their, their internal reality about who they are. They have constructed such a fake version of who they are that anything anybody says or does that um, threatens to crack that facade must be met with extreme violence and, and response so that no one thinks to do it again. Because God forbid anybody see what a terrified little boy I am at the core of all of this. Which isn't dissimilar to how we were talking about V earlier, building his identity around media, except it's authentic media and, like, reality and knowledge rather than uh, fabricated, uh, you know, conspiratorial or or just, you know, downright wrong uh, kinds of of things. And it, it is... It creates a juxtaposition between the two that connects them in a way that I don't think the graphic novel really noticed, but I think the movie is pretty keen on that the idea that V is using violence, and he's using violence for, quote, good, but in the end, he can't necessarily survive this ordeal any more than the others who are utilizing this can, because he's not a million miles away, and then to relate that to more uh, insurrectionist like anarchist practice, it, it, it's very different, because in real life, when you're having to do the dirty work of insurrection, it is direct action. It is trying to prevent some kind of greater harm to the surroundings, the populace, the environment. You know, when the Stop Cop City movement in Atlanta burns construction equipment, they are setting back the destruction of an old wood forest by days, weeks, months. Yeah. And it is it is directed, and it is usually against property not not people people. and it's but Uh, it's it's specific it's tailored it's not just yanking the rug out from under everything yeah to see where everything lands which kind of then that that fits very much with what you were saying about uh these ideas in the in the book about the, the destructor and the creator elements of 
um, of anarchy and the way that he's looking at it, the destructor is actually the other side of the same coin as the fascists who are holding onto everything in the first place. The creator is a different coin altogether, and that's why he needs a different person to pick up that side of things. And, and I think that's really supported in, in the graphic novel and to a certain extent in, in the movie. But I just want to say, like, in real life, it's not quite like that because you in order for a, a movement to make headway requires a diversity of tactics um and if like you just keep doing the same thing eventually they're going to figure out how to stop you. yeah <laughs> if, if you go out there and you peacefully protest and you get beaten down by cops and arrested that's not going to change anything but it is still a part of the process it's part of the community it's part of the the insurrectionary like thing and sometimes that does involve blowing up fascists there are some stories that are important but they're also important that like they go for very little collateral they go for being like like this person is too much to do anything but send them but but explode the road and send them over a church yeah. in the case of that one spanish yeah. fascist I, I heard a great statement from um, a just stop oil protester uh, on a podcast a few weeks ago and she said because somebody basically said to her you you use all these extreme tactics extreme tactics they're throwing paint on people come on um but you know you, you do all these obstre- extreme obstructions how do you think that people are going to come over to your side and your way of looking at things and she said that's not what we're about we're about raising awareness of the issue itself we don't want necessarily we we know people aren't going to come and agree with and support us and our methods what we're doing is getting everybody to look at it so that the people who come along with the more moderate um, gentler ways of reforming have a better chance of being able to get their voices heard because we've done all the shouting and that's made everybody else quiet down and look in this direction yeah there's a there's a good good with an asterisk book that I can recommend called How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm that really talks a lot about kind of diversity of tactics I don't necessarily think I agree with everything he said but it's still a pretty interesting book um, and real fun to read openly on a bus, let me tell you. <laughs> you get real interesting looks from folks if you've got a, a bright orange book that just says how to blow up a pipeline. <laughs> uh, Finch and Dominic, the two detectives. Yes. Um, in the graphic novel, they're sort of like bumbling side characters until Finch takes LSD and goes off the rails. <laughs> it's, it's a real weird thing. But in the movie, they make them like almost the only competent people who are like part of the regime until they're not and um they give them a lot of like little wins as they're trying to figure out the whole the whole story and i think they very quickly veer away from like trying to find out who v is to like oh shit we've uncovered like the most heinous plot that anyone has ever done and it was done by our government against us and i i there's even a moment in jordan tower where v because v just murdered like well, okay. V just killed. It's not. It's not murder if it's police. That's a statement that's going to age well. Um, the it, like six cops in Jordan Tower, and then well, when they were he... busy machine gunning him. So I think right, that, it's right. not even murder. Self at that defense. Point. <laughs> like, he was. Wheel- he bought a knife yeah. to a machine gun fight, and he won. Uh, but then later on, he uh, Dominic, the younger of the two investigators, pulls a gun on V. And it's that wonderful scene where he's like, oh, I wasn't expecting the the response time from London's finest and, uh, and and all that stuff. And then Evie maces Dominic and then V knocks Dominic out rather than murders him. Yeah. 
and I was stuck. I was struck by that for a while, being like, "Well, I know, like Dominic's an important character. I really like him and Finch and their interplay." Um, but why wouldn't V kill this person? And then later on, why does V find them to be important to reach out to in the form of, of Rockwood? And if you want a good coincidence, those three characters that are um, Creedy's old bagmen, all of those names are members of the gunpowder plot from Guy Fox. Ah, nice. So like, there's a coincidence. Also, did they deliberately make Rockwood look like Alan Moore? <laughs> they didn't say anything about that. A but crazy that old cat weasel mall center. Dominic is one the one played by Rupert Graves, who is I think that's Lestrade from the uh, BBC Sherlock, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Nice. Okay. They're really good. I really like them. I came to the conclusion that the reason that V doesn't kill Dominic and ultimately like helps them and kind of likes what they're doing is that. By being detectives, they are not enforcers of violence, they are seekers of truth. And yes. there is, in a way, no greater purpose for somebody to to like pursue than to pursue truth, to understand what like reality and the answers are. And I, I think that is why Finch gets elevated to a level similar, or like I said, on the same level as Dietrich and Evie whenever uh, they, they juxtapose the three of them. And I think it's also very telling that Finch has an audio jamming device already. Like, they don't show him like getting it. V doesn't leave it for him. He just has one because he doesn't entirely feel comfortable being a part of this organization while also being the seeker of truth. And I um, love that they made those characters so much more interesting and nuanced. Uh, and in in the graphic novel, it is actually Finch who shoots V in the in the underground. And I love that in this one, Finch shows up. He fi- he has found the truth. He tells Evie to back down, and Evie says no, and he backs down. And uh, and there's a and there's one quick shot of uh, whenever they're going through the montage of Finch being like, it's like I can see the future. It's like I can see the past, and all all that kind of stuff. It was just a feeling. There's a, a quick flash of a cut scene where Evie and Dominic are living in an apartment and uh, Evie's growing roses. Um, nice. Which I think is a really nice kind of, like, circling back to all of it together, that these seekers of truth are, while being part of the regime, being necessary for the regime, are not really a- adherent to it. They're not and that's why, of it. Yeah, yeah, and that's why they're not... They're not uh, bureaucrats in the same way that that police are. They don't they don't use their truncheons to reinforce the rules. They are looking for the truth of the matter, and and it makes for a much better uh, character arc for for them. I love that Creedy and Sutler and all those they kind of eat each other. That's kind of the end of most fascist movements, anyways. Mm. Them turning on each other. Note. Uh, the January 6th hearings when the Proud Boys all immediately turned on each other. Beautiful stuff. Um, and it, it's it's fascinating to me that this movie came out in 2006 and feels like it could come out like nah. two years from now and be like absolutely immaculate as far as tying into a lot of things that have happened. Mm. Like it's just thinking back to the fact that this movie was pre-Obama, mm. right? Pre-Trump pre the rise of Christofascism, pre the existential crisis of climate change threatening everyone, like to make the choice between socialism and barbarity. Like it is so before its time 
in and such ahead a of its strange time. way. And ahead of its time. It, yeah, and, and it's an adaptation of something from the 80s. Mm. And the fact that, that this completely took me by surprise, how much Willow really gravitated to it and, and connected with it in a, in a way that felt like it, it's as representative of the energy of their generation as it is of the energy of the generation that was dealing with Thatcher when Moore wrote it. One thing I noted that is absolutely key to the way this film ends is that Citizen V does not trigger the bomb himself. He presents all the evidence to Evie and he lets her decide. Her choice is the key to this film, is the key to renewal. Dantes is the only domino that doesn't fall. So because Evie is a more politically aware character in this, and an older character, a character who has had more agency, who has lived in the world and been more autonomous, it creates a situation where V's plan does not go according to his intentions, and he has to improvise a little bit more. It shows that he's fallible, it shows that he's human, and Again, it develops... more reactive. More reactive, and it develops a relationship between them that is complicated because at the very beginning of the movie and the very end of the movie Evie says in voiceover that she was in love with V in some way and yet we see him torture her we see her throw that back at him several times we see him actually remorseful for those actions like like he is he feels guilty but that he had to do it but also thinks he had to do it like it was necessary but it still hurt him for so perspective means... christian gray did way worse and he wasn't even blowing up parliament <laughs> that would have been a way better movie uh, <laughs> surprise ending <laughs> uh and and i and and so that put together with the fact in the graphic novel like i said before evie dons the mask she becomes the new v and in this everyone dons the mask and everyone is the new v because Anarchy, the creator part of Anarchy, the real crux of it is we save us. It is community building, it is communalistic, and it is people working together for each other, not for the state, not for themselves, because mutual aid and working for other people, working with other people, helps you too. It makes everyone better, it makes community stronger. and. That is so important to the characterization because unlike the graphic novel, there are emotions between the characters in the movie because revolution isn't bombs. Revolution is love between people. It is love in the community. It is care for your neighbor, love for the other in spite of what the powers that be tell you. And I, I think it's really important that in the end, V is not the man who saves the day. He creates the rubble that is the canvas of a better future. The people out there, even the dead people, the people who died and sacrificed themselves essentially for the movement, who show up at the end removing their masks. That's my favorite part of the movie. It is so beautiful. Me too. They are all of those who see the truth, all of those who are activated, and that's why it is so important that those dead are revealed there. That's why it's important that he was you, he was me, he was my father, he was my mother, he was Edmond Dantes. Everyone removes the mask of the destroyer at the end of the movie so that they can work together as a community to create that new society, and that is 
absolutely not how the graphic novel ends, and that is absolutely necessary for a better understanding of how anarchist philosophy would look to making a better society. So the movie is a better representation of the politics that the graphic novel pretends to understand. Boom! <laughs> Credits! <laughs> This robust, riotous, resounding repository of resourcefully researched and rousingly read righteous rhetoric is recompensed regularly by a ragtag roundup of ribald rebels. So many hide in the shadows, lending strength to our cause, but the following step forth into the light. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameson Wright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosetsky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman.
so is done. 